If you're listening for the first time, welcome. If you're back for more, thank you for continuing to support this project and being a part of it. If you're not yet a member of my email list, go to sarahmarshallnd.com to register. That will continue to be the hub of all new releases of podcasts, articles, and updates. As this project goes into its third year this June, I'm building a team to expand into more ways to support you on your healing journey, and my email list is the best way to do that. Go to my website, sarahmarshallnd.com to sign up. Welcome to Heal. Ever wonder to yourself if eating organic food is worth it? Well, in today's episode, research scientist Tristan Brandhorst makes a pretty serious case for how fungicide-laden foods are damaging our mitochondria and could even be a significant part of the Western epidemic of chronic disease. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Well, this is going to be an exciting episode of Heal. At least I think so. No pressure. I'll kind of live up to your expectations. Yep. So today I have the brilliant, the phenomenal, the marvelous Tristan Brandhorst, who is a dear friend of mine and also a senior scientist at the University of Wisconsin. And you spent what, 20 years studying fungi? Mostly fungi. Yeah. yeah. We uh, specialized in that. It wasn't until the last eight years that we accidentally got into pesticides. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really what I'm excited to talk about here because you've taught me so much about an area that I already was, you know, interested in tracking as a naturopath. We talk about, you know, environmental chemical toxicity and how that impacts some of our client, my, you know, client's health. And it's something I've been aware of. I've never gotten way deep into environmental medicine. That's a whole field that people get into, but actually more and more for me in the last few years, as I've started to become aware of mold illnesses and mold toxic sicknesses from water damaged buildings, I started to learn more about how we manage that issue. But then there's this bleed over into, well, then what about the safety of our food on both sides of the fence in terms of food carrying molds and fungi that might be damaging to our gut health to the other side of the extreme, which is the pesticides, the herbicides, the fungicides that we use on our food that kind of just go into the background for most of us. Either way, it's environmental toxins uh, because fungi are dangerous because they make toxins to protect themselves and protect their food sources. So yeah, this is all stuff that influences us, impacts us, damages our livers and damages our immune systems. Yeah. And now I think in medicine, at least in functional medicine and kind of the cutting edge, we're recognizing how many diseases that we thought were sort of insulary in their own little packages of heart disease, diabetes, and we're starting to interconnect everything to, you know, oh, wait a minute, this gut microbiome is kind of a big deal for all of it. And then the gut microbiome and how it is, it is the immune system. It also influences the immune system, how the immune system and the endocrine system, I mean, we can, you know, and at a level as a naturopath, I'm like, so wait a minute, science finally discovering what humans have known for thousands of years, that the body's all interconnected, but it is actually cutting edge information to get the interplay oh, yeah. between it all. Yeah, it's the, the advances that have made are amazing. The understanding of at least the scientific community has advanced immeasurably. It's, it's slow to communicate with regular doctors and people are only slowly coming to the realization that we need to come up with actual solutions. But you've got so much of your immune system fluxing through this GI tract, which is full of life, 
full of organisms that are in, interacting with you and supplying potent chemicals to inhibit or enhance your immune system. If you've got a bad gut biome, you're in trouble. And if you've got a really strong gut biome, it can invigorate you in ways that people are only coming to, uh, to understand now. Yeah, it's literally like our protection mechanism or the thing that actually, you know, I mean, there's there's some research now finally getting done about, you know, when we have these cases of COVID that we can't figure out why did this person pass or why did they have such a horrible case of COVID? We're starting to actually have some people looking at the gut microbiome as the interconnection and people that had a healthy microbiome versus a strong one. So I would love your version of how do you describe I mean, people have even heard that gut microbiome, like in layman's terms for the average person, how would you describe like, what is that and what does it do for us? Uh, Well, the microbiome is very complex. It's literally hundreds if not thousands of different species of bacteria that live in a certain balance, all occupying a niche, devouring certain chemicals, some of which are are bad for us and emitting chemicals, some of which are good for us. Other than bacteria, there are also fungi, there are even viruses that flourish there and inf- that, and attack the different bacteria. So it's a, you know, it's an, an ecology unto itself that we have very little appreciation of from the top of our gut to the bottom. Of, but uh, be- because its balance is tenuous and we can disrupt that balance with toxins in our diet, with antibiotics, Um, one thing that's sort of tragic is the way we would reinitiate a damaged microbiome is by, you know, oddly enough contact with the feces of healthy humans. And of course, in this day and age, we don't have contact with the feces of healthy humans, especially when it comes to food preparation. So they're now looking at ways of reinvigorating the gut biome by basically giving people what they call a fecal transplant where they put it up your behind and give you a a new lease on life with a a strong microbiome. But people are trying to do this on their own. Don't waste your time. It's, it needs to be done by a professional because the ones that are really important are anaerobic. And the moment you take them out of someone's body, they've got moments of life left. Yeah. got to be put back in an anaerobic environment and the the ways people are trying this on their own kill all the anaerobic organisms and it's it's practically useless so one thing i'm very hopeful for is that it will become a standardized procedure after any course of antibiotics yeah because it's so important we know this now and yet we're doing nothing to replace the bacteria that we've destroyed yeah You know, it's interesting because we have such a, I mean, understandable aversion to our own feces. And yet, you know, that was actually how the microbiome would get strengthened and passed around in tribe and in family communities. And if anyone did have something happen where they might've gotten sick, you would have naturally been exposed to the bacteria from your other family members and tribe members, and it would have reinvigorated your immune system in that same way. And we are so sterilized. And like, we've seen the extremes where in countries that have incredibly high antibacterial cleaning standards, Japan being one of the highest, we see autoimmune disease flourish. Right. There's an incredibly strong relationship between that and and then allergies and asthma and things like that. It's actually been documented in the science. If you have a kiddo with a lot of allergies and ear infections in particular, introducing a dog into the home 
introduces a whole bunch of antigen, antigen being all the different stuff that our immune system has to interact with and be stimulated by actually reduces the incidence of ear infections by 40%. And so one of my favorite immunologists, Heather's wiki, she says, if you want to help your kid out with their immune system, lick the dog. <laughs> well, I always tell people that biochemists and biologists uh, um, and microbiologists come in two different flavors. They're the ones who sterilize everything and get really panicked about bacteria because they know there's some bad things out there. And they're the folks like me who are like, no, no, let kids eat dirt. Um, let totally. them eat let them get dirty, let them get grimy. Don't worry about it. It's natural and and we actually need it. Yeah. We, we need to be a little dirty in our lives. We need to get exposed to nature. And, and I think people can get their heads wrapped around dirt, but they're like, wait, you mean poop too? <laughs> but yes, we actually do mean poop too. Particularly the poop of anybody that you think has got a particularly strong, healthy system. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't, I'm not in a position to recommend yeah. how about that, but I do hope that we come up with a way of doing it responsibly and safely. And because there are people who have healthy microbiomes and there are people who don't, and we can now tell the difference. Yeah. So find someone who's got a perfectly good microbiome and let them donate to all the people who are suffering because their microbiomes have been damaged by antibiotics. Oh my God. I'm totally, this is terrible. It's where my brain goes. I'm like, this is the next level of Instagram influencers is going to be like people who are popular because they have such great microbiomes and they can like <laughs> build their influence through their microbiology. Like, they're, they're, they'll have artisanal poop. Yeah. This is, this is, I mean, naturopaths are known as the poop doctors because we talk a lot about poop. We get very interested in how people's GI tracts are functioning and and I'm very comfortable with this territory, but you know, it's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good to be had from probiotics and prebiotics, and they're starting to understand a lot more about that now. You know, I've been reading about how propionic acid, for instance, is something that is yielded by some of the rarer bacteria in our guts. And, and these bacteria are the ones that often go down. And then we have a deficit of this fuel that can be used by our bodies and to influence the, our immune system in positive ways. So we're, we're just starting to pick up these little tidbits and learn what to put into prebiotic mixtures that fuel the right bacteria and, and help them expand in their niche. So let's talk about that for a minute because we're here is, is, you know, even as a doctor and I mean, I back in school, they would, there was doctors that were on either side of the camp. Some would say, you know, probiotics, absolutely. Everybody needs to take it every single day for the rest of their life because our systems are so diminished and especially anyone with chronic illness. And then there's the other camp that says all these probiotics are really not doing much of anything. It's like trying to spit in the ocean and change the tides when you look at it from a numbers game, but we do have clinical trials and a fair amount of evidence that shows that, you know, IBS, ulcerative colitis, all kinds of GI diseases have been symptomatically and over even more than symptomatically improved by the addition of probiotics. But do you have any sense of like how often, and how do you know if you have a good probiotic? And like, I mean, I feel like that's even where I'm guessing is. So I, I'm a big believer in, in supplements and probiotics nowadays. I used to be a, a big critique a bit critical about them. I didn't believe in them. Now I'm a true believer, but I don't think any of them should be taken every day. And that's one of the things that's true about the way we evolved as, as omnivores. 
uh, on one day we'd eat a bunch of fruit on another day we'd find some fish on another day we'd get some some red meat on another day we'd eat root vegetables out of the soil and we'd be exposed to different nutrients this way and it's the same thing with prebiotics probiotics and supplements we don't need anything every day our body holds on to it for a certain amount of time and actually can be negative to we kind of build up a resistance if you take certain supplements every day your body is, becomes blasé about it. it's like oh well we don't need x y and z anymore so we'll stop making it ourselves. we'll get really lax about how we extract it from our food and then if you stop taking it you could end up being mm. sick withdrawal what i do is i take them as needed as i go through certain stresses i try to identify the supplements that will help me the most after i take antibiotics i take the pre and the probiotics to rebuild my gut microbiome that kind of thing basically and that's some place i think naturopaths can be very helpful because they can give you advice on what supplements the more are targeted approach yeah points in your day your week and your life yeah, totally. And, you know, I, I mean, to be completely transparent, I've struggled around this because I truly believe that the rotation of supplements is really important, even in terms of formula, like, yeah. like don't stay on the same fish oil forever. Don't stay on the same B vitamin forever, like change, at least change formulas, change brands, you know, mm -hmm. move around a bit so that you have the body guessing some, and it doesn't do that. Then I also run into the, the issue sometimes though, where people do like their routines. And when they get into their routine, if you take them off of their routine, it's getting them back into it again can be challenging. Right. So like it's I try and put rotation into my actual treatment plans, but they're usually taking something. I mean, and most of my clients are pretty deep or significantly into chronic illness. So we're like massively rebuilding their body, which is right. not the same thing as someone who's generally healthy and well looking from a maintenance and prevention standpoint. Well, I still that, want to be careful about it. That actually brings us to another topic, which is how to rebuild and what supplements can go uh, bring you in that direction. You know, one thing I want to talk about later is the damage that pesticides do to our bodies, which is uh, tending to be, it turns out, oxidative damage. <clears throat> A lot of people don't seem to appreciate how poisonous oxygen is actually to living things. Our bodies have come up with very ingenious ways of managing the oxygen we need to run our metabolism, but it mostly involves passing it to the mitochondria, letting them do the dirty work and keeping our own proteins and DNA as far away from the oxygen as we can possibly manage because it's so reactive. Oxygen breaks a lot of things down. I mean, they'll use ozone to actually kill microbes and, right. and forms of life. Like you can use oxygen to clean like surfaces, labs, containers, you can use it for actually destroying life. From most biochemical perspectives, oxygen is one of the more poisonous elements out there, but we needed to run a highly efficient metabol metabolism. So we shuttle it to the mitochondria, let them take the damage, and then uh, we eat the damaged mitochondria. Are we autophage the damaged mitochondria and then let them duplicate themselves back from the the undamaged mitochondria that they have left over i didn't so, realize that cycling through our mitochondria oh yeah we're killing mitochondria constantly. with oxygen well they get damaged with oxygen then our body says well you're not doing your job we'll, we'll devour you <laughs> and then we'll let the other mitochondria which replicate on their own replicate to restore the proper number of mitochondria that you need yeah. to run your, your systems. So, so one of my, uh, oh God, 
one of my, my burned in my memory experiences of my professional chemistry degree was my organic chemistry professor literally made us memorize and write out all the chemical reactions of the electron transport chain, which is the process of how the body takes oxygen and Mm -hmm. converts the process of creating ATP and ADP, which is adenotriphosphate or adenodiphosphate, which is how we actually liberate energy from breaking glucose and sugar and carbohydrates down for fuel. And like, I literally had, and so this is one of those things in chemistry that's burned into my brain. Thanks to my Mm -hmm. professor in my junior year of college about that whole process, but I never really took it further into the way the byproducts of that would potentially have an impact on the mitochondria. And then that need, because in, in naturopathic medicine, we've just started talking about the importance of mitochondrial health. This we're going to get into the conversation of like N-acetylcysteine and glutathione and how important that is to help support the body. And this whole, like even with cancer for the longest time, the predominant conversation was cancer was caused by DNA damage. And when the DNA was damaged by say carcinogens or certain toxins, the cell would rebuild itself incorrectly and become a cancer cell. Well, now we've started to look deeper and some people are saying it's a, an oxidative respiration issue where the cell is weakened by exactly what we're talking about, the oxidative stress. And in maybe even the mitochondria are weakened and they're not bouncing back. They're not coming back and it stresses the cell. Well, the that, that chain of electron transport that takes place in mitochondria is so important to the metabolism, to health. And it, it involves so much of our living energy that if you are uh, an organism that would give off a toxin, if you're trying to poison things in your environment, if you're a poisonous bacteria, a poisonous fungus, that's what you want to target. And a lot of pesticides are based on bacterial and fungal toxins. Almost all the poisons that we use in agriculture came from living subjects, from living items at some point. They're not all like totally artificial. Humans didn't just sit there and invent it. They actually looked at nature. They figured out one of the things nature did and mimicked it. We mimicked it. We either used it directly or we came up with a way of modifying it so it was more useful to our purposes, but it's all based on natural processes. And the way you kill a thing is you attack its mitochondria because mm-hmm. there's important. So we are basically living in a sea of uh, man-made chemicals that target the mitochondria and they, they investigate them for poisonousness, but they investigate them individually and they don't right. look at the aggregate or the possibility that there might be synergistic interference between them. Uh, it's not just additive one-to-one. Some of them may actually interact together to become more toxic multiple. or more potent. Yeah, synergistically multiplicative. And that's that's terribly worrying from the point of view of biochemists looking at this from the outside saying, well, why aren't we looking at this as a, an aggregate experience? Because they're all doing the same thing. They're all damaging the mitochondria. And so this, when you damage mitochondria, you release oxygen, you release different forms of oxidative stress into the body where it causes terrible damage to the DNA and to proteins and to your longevity. Certain oxidative stressors like methylglyoxal are basically liquid age. It is what kills you over time due to old age. And if you're dealing with a pesticide that releases methylglyoxal into the body, 
for one thing, no one's going to be able to tell what killed you. It looks like you died of old age, even if you were much younger. I'm so glad you're saying this because, you know, one, it's a massive bajillion dollar, that's technical term, industry is in preserving youthfulness, both in terms of beauty, but also inside of the uh, functional medicine with longevity medicine. And people will go to incredibly great lengths and spend a lot of money on things. And it's interesting because then it's like, this brings in the conversation of the importance of organic food. Right. No, that's the advice I give people. Don't spend a lot of money on longevity treatments. Just spend money on organic food, learn how to cook. It's hard to eat organic unless you learn how to cook. Someone in the household has to love cooking and make it part of their love language and and make sure that everyone there that's important to them is eating organic food all the time. Because if you don't learn how to cook, you have to eat out. You have to order out. You have to eat processed food. And it's all pesticide laden. There's no way around it. So that's where I think people need to put their money is in things that fight the the toxins that we eat and in food that lacks those toxins. It's been, it's done wonders for me. I think I'd be dead right now if I hadn't changed my life around and started cooking and eating organic. I don't think I would have made it to the age of 56. And why is that? What were some of the things you're dealing with? I had, I was run down. I didn't have any energy. I was, parts of my body were starting to fail. I could barely walk at one point, muscular atrophy, so many problems. And when my fiance got me interested in organic food and and convinced me that based on my own research, this made sense, I, I turned a corner. And as I got more interested in probiotics, prebiotic supplements, and following her advice, because she was very interested in that kind of thing from the naturopathic viewpoint. I became stronger progressively, you know, and now I, I feel like I'm 30 years old again. I mean, that blows my mind because the Tristan I've met and known as a bodybuilder and you're like this like ox of a man. And I'm like, what do you mean? You were like barely couldn't even, I, but that's incredible. Um, I was weak. I was overweight. I was, I was sliding downhill to an early death. My head, actually, I had a severe atherosclerosis. At one point they told me I had the arteries of a 90 year old and yeah. I only had a chance of making it to 60. And I thought, well, that's not good. But shortly after that, we got into the organic food and the supplements and, and working out every day. And five years later, I had 50% atherosclerosis. And then my, my most recent medical visit, they said the no noticeable atherosclerosis. Totally reversed. Yeah, totally reversed. And I have, uh, you know, they apparently they know this can happen, but they almost never recommend it because they know almost no one's going we'll to follow. do it. Right. Yeah. And, and just for most people, atherosclerosis is the placking and hardening of the arteries, the clogging of the arteries. And, you know, it's a precursor to having uh, heart failure, because eventually if you don't have enough circulation going into the arteries of your heart, it doesn't go very well. That's really, so this is something that I, cause so I was born and raised a vegetarian. And mm-hmm. for me, the way I was doing it probably had something to do with it. And some other factors, it was actually putting me in a serious nutritional deficiency state. And so when I was 25 and I started naturopathic school, I actually had a colleague call me out and said, you're addicted to sugar and you need to eat meat. I was so offended. Um, and then I did, and I was definitely addicted to sugar and had major blood sugar issues. And I went full paleo 
And along with that kind of naturally came a conversation about local foods, organic foods, working towards to knowing where your food came from and all of that. But I've noticed there's still a pretty predominant conversation in even functional medicine that the Mediterranean diet or a predominantly plant-based, if not completely plant-based diet is the way to go to reverse heart disease. But I've always wondered, is it truly about meat versus plant or are we unwilling to say and call a spade a spade, which is our animal industry is riddled with the wrong diets for our animals. And they also consume huge amounts of pesticides and fungicides in the grains that they eat. So their systems are depressed. And then we eat that meat versus if you can manage, I don't know if you can manage to get a lot of pesticide free meat, but at least healthier animals on a more natural diet. That's hard to demand. There's very, there's very control over that. Uh, There's very little in the way of organic meats, I'd say. And I don't know, I honestly don't know the science behind that. But I will say that many Americans are far too focused on meat. And Mm. it's very unhealthy to eat lots and lots of red meat, especially. I don't think it precludes having small amounts of meat for flavor. We need a certain number of amino acids. And some of the amino acids are much more prevalent in meat. Yeah, that are in other vegetables. <clears throat> there are ways to get around it. I've had friends who had they they literally couldn't eat meats. So there are ways to structure your nutrition so that you yeah. don't uh, suffer unduly. But I think a lot of people will be better off if they have small amounts of meat. They limit the meat intake. And that's where I've actually ended up personally, kind of naturally, like as my body healed and then I found my way, I would, I eat way less animal protein now than I did in the very first couple of years when I was rebuilding my body. And so I also, with my clients talk about, there's a therapeutic diet, which we're doing something intentional to rebuild your body. And then there's what, where you may like lend yourself maintenance in the rest of your life. I have way more plant. I, and I definitely feel better when I have a more plant-based diet along with I'm type O blood type. I don't know how much you subscribe to the blood type diets, but I do see some trending in my clients where different metabolisms, some people can go completely vegetarian and it's like, doesn't even phase them. Other people, they need some animal protein in their diet and it kind of keeps things in balance, but it doesn't have to be a major massive focus. Once again, I'm a biochemist. I'm a biochemist and okay. not a, not a nutritionist. Uh-huh. Okay, good. So, um, oh, so I really do want to talk about uh, the pesticide issue because yeah. as a biochemist, that's my specialty. That's what we discovered and what got us involved in this from, from the very get-go. And we, as I mentioned earlier, we did get this, into this completely by accident. We were looking at certain pesticides to see if they could be used uh, therapeutically. You know, if, if you have a fungal infection, are some of the fungicides we use in our food potentially medicines? And one of our employees, one of our graduate students, began a project where they were starting off by trying to prove that this fungicide called fludoxinol worked the way everyone knew it did. They're just basically trying to get a a ground, on the ground reading baseline, and they couldn't. They couldn't do it. They couldn't prove that it worked by the safe mechanism that everyone knew it worked by. And at, at first, we were just going to imagine that they had failed in their effort. But then on the advice of my fiance, we thought, what if they're right? What if they actually have discovered something? And we started looking more closely and we discovered that it was true that yes, this pesticide did not work by the 
advertised and long touted safe mechanism that everyone believed in. And, you know, the, they have since the people who sell it have since stopped claiming that it works by this safe mechanism. I believe they are trying to claim it works by a different mechanism, which is also, of course, safe because that's profitable. But uh, the fact is no one knows exactly how it works and we need to know more before we put it on all of our, and as we discuss, I, I examined this pesticide in particular, I discovered that pesticides in general were responsible for so much oxidative damage that they went after our mitochondria, just as they would go after the mitochondria of the organisms they are targeted to, the weeds in the case of herbicides, the fungi in the case of fungicides and the insects in the case of insecticides. Um, they have a lesser effect on us and in aggregate, it can really damage us and lead us to a place where we're not able to defend ourselves against other stresses in the environment and disease. The thing that we worry about the most is that the fungicide we're studying, fludoxinol, may be a potentiator, that it basically attacks the body's resistance in a way that allows all the other pesticides to damage us that it attacks our ability to resist that damage in a way that lets all the others do more damage, leading to things like cancer and autoimmune diseases and other pathologies, trying to get money together to go after these problems. But it's very hard. There's a lot of resistance from corporate America. They, they don't want us to look at these things. It's not popular. So we are putting together a petition right now for Beyond Pesticides, a group that I work with, to try and limit the use of this pesticide until such time as the proper research can be done. I, I believe we will one day find out that this pesticide in particular, which is on almost all of our food, is specifically very, very dangerous and needs to be removed from our diet forever. But we can't prove that until we do the work. Yeah. So in this case, it's not even just a matter of a general conversation of the damaging effects of pesticides, fungicides, and insecticides, but that there actually are some specific types that could be far more dangerous than others right. and you know, have been deemed by what the EPA, the FDA, as considered safe and, and you know, non-disease causing for human beings. So paradoxically, even though a lot of these pesticides are added to our food after they've been taken off of the tree and taken out of the field, the FDA doesn't regulate them. They don't consider anything that's used as a pesticide basically anywhere as anything like a food additive, and they won't regulate them. It's all up to the EPA, which usually deals with things like herbicides and insecticides that are washed off in nature. But when you're dealing with fungicides, they spray them on our food before they put them in the box to send to the grocery store because they don't want them to get moldy. No one will buy moldy food. So they add the fungicide at this last stage. And in my mind, this should cause it to be a food additive and it should be regulated as such by the FDA, but it's not. The EPA doesn't care to regulate it any differently than the things that are applied in the field at the beginning of the cycle of agriculture. Hmm. So by this dip, drench, or spray mechanism where they put it on our food before they ship it to us, a lot of it ends up on our dinner plates. And the, uh, the research we did, some of the unpublished research we did found that when organisms are exposed to fludoxanol, they lose a critical oxidative protectant, a molecule in the body called, called glutathione. I don't know if 
I think you've heard of this. Yeah, for sure. We haven't talked much about it on the podcast in specifics. My clients hear about it all the time. (laughs) I'm I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear they might know what glutathione is because most people don't. But it's basically three amino acids strung together that defend the body and fuel the immune system against oxidative stress. And as long as you have a healthy liver and a healthy diet, you're constantly turning out more glutathione to address the oxidative stress that different things in our environment, like UV rays, uh, toxins in our food might be doing to us. But if you damage the liver, if you expose yourself to certain pesticides like fludoxyl, we fear that it may drive down the glutathione levels which leaves you vulnerable to all the other stresses that you might face, whether it's a disease stress, viral stress on your immune system, or, or stresses like undue heat, undue cold, ultraviolet light. All of these things can end up causing oxidative stress to the body. And if you don't have enough glutathione, you don't have the tools to defend yourself. And of course, this means that anyone who's exposed to a lot of a pesticide that drives down your glutathione no one's going to say you died from that pesticide. They're going to say you died of the next thing you were exposed to, whether it's a virus, it could be COVID-19. Mm-hmm. It it's be- completely unprovable where the source of the actual issue came from because it's so in the background of the body. else that kills you, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. That's, that's really problematic for epidemiologists. We can't look at- It's untraceable. You know, if this made all of your children be born without arms, we'd know in a heartbeat. We'd say, uh-huh. yeah, who is working with this had children born without arms. And now we know, well, everyone's dying of a hundred different things. And you, yep. we just don't have the computer power to deal with that kind of complexity. And so that's why we need to look at the, the source. We need to look at the pesticide and study it specifically and directly and figure out how its mechanism worked. I don't know if people understand this. Most pesticides, they don't know how they work. They don't care. They just care. They just that know they, that the end result. They try to look at the pe- effect it has on, on mice, you know, in, in the laboratory. They try to look at ways that it might be toxic to rats but they, they don't actually know how it's killing things and they, they don't care. They don't actually want to know that. So, <laughs> so that leaves people like me out in the cold trying to figure out how these things work and no one wants to f- support the fund and fund the money. Well, and that's some of what you've even directly dealt with is, you know, you in theory are ready with bated breath to continue this research when the grants come in which sounds all like, oh yeah, of course. But like, that's potentially part of the issue is where the funding gets tied up, then things just don't get studied. Some of these study sections are perhaps involved is the right word with companies, the corporates, entities that make these pesticides. And it's literally impossible to get a grant through that process of, of selection when they have essentially a influencing veto power over the work. It's very hard to get work done. And if people go to the EPA and ask them, the EPA is, we are learning now is very much in the pockets of corporate entities, big pharma and the agricultural giants. They, they're in bed with them and they can't do their job. There's been whistleblowers recently who have said the EPA does not do what it's supposed to do. It's been domesticated by the people they're supposed to regulate. And this is a very 
complex and difficult issue because they're supposed to protect us. They're supposed to be in communication with scientists like me and find out what's dangerous so they can protect people like you. And, and yet here we are. Yeah. And it, I mean, so what about in other countries? Like, do you have any sense? Cause I mean, it seems like Europe is better with regulating some of these things and protecting their citizens. And I mean, by better, that might be only by an increment in a certain way, but do you have a sense that there is more support in other places or is this really a global issue? I think it is a global issue, but I think there's a little more support for this. In fact, we are approaching entities in the UK and uh, the EU trying to convince them that uh, certain pesticides are, are off the table and should be avoided. And we think that they might be more amenable, but they often look to the U.S. for guidance. You know, for many, many years, we were the leader in these types of things. And if there were hundreds of studies performed in the U.S., why would they not believe those studies? Yeah. Of course, who are paying for the studies are the folks who are making the pesticides. And that always makes you worry that there might be uh, some bias, that there might be. So if we look from, okay, at the moment, that's the world we live in. What can people do? What are the most important things? Like, I mean, would it make a difference to wash our fruits and vegetables? But I also wonder this is coming through grains and other processed food. It's not just fruits yeah. and vegetables. Yeah, it's coming through grains as well. Basically anything that has a tendency to rot on the vine or in, in the bins is having fungicide applied to it. And that's very problematic because Bacteria, we can make antibiotics that only kill bacteria and, that, and don't hurt us so much. But fungicide, fungi are, are eukaryotic. They are, they're not a simple organism. They're far closer to us evolutionarily. So when you try to kill a fungi, it's more likely going to damage us. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we have a problem in medicine. All the fungicides are terribly toxic to us. You know, we haven't found any that aren't toxic to us, and we, we'd love to find some that were not toxic to us. But the, the idea that there are fungicides available to agriculture that are not toxic to us is kind of perplexing to those of us in, in the medical field. With how you understand how they actually work. Yeah. Right. Like, why, why do you think this isn't going to hurt us when all the fungicides we know hurt us? So... I think there are other ways to protect food. I think organic food is a good idea. I think there are ways to protect it from fungi. Like uh, there's an organization that's trying to spray the food with a thin cellulose layer to basically repair any damages to the external surface of the plant. Because that's so where that, the fungi will go after is any damage or any weak point. Yep. Yeah. And, but if you repair that with a thin layer of cellulose, which we can you know, tolerate very well, the, the fungi can't get in and can't do its work before you are, 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 are cooking and eating the plant. Mm -hmm. So we don't need fungicides sprayed all over our food. We have alternatives. And I think that's something that people need to ask for is alternatives to fungicides. There's, there's two different aspects of this. There's what we can do as a society, which is demand of our leaders that we change the way we look at food and pesticides. And then there's what we can do as individuals, which is uh, demand organic options and demand that organic food not be so expensive that people on a controlled budget can't afford it. Um, it really could be subsidized. We subsidize corn syrup. And we subsidize a lot of foods that go into fast food. And we, sub I mean, there's, there's subsidies all over the food industry. Right. It's not, not available to us. 
it just takes a certain amount of societal will. We just have to uh, realize where our safety, where our safety concerns are. I know we're, we're not under a lot of threat from terrorists these days. We're under a lot of threat from our own corporations that are, you know, trying to make a profit and not worrying about our safety. And I think we need to demand that as both a, a society and as individuals. Yeah. Uh, if you shop and you only buy organic food, the people who make the food are going to notice as that changes. But for instance, there's a lot of children in the United States that are under food duress. They don't have all the food they need. They don't have enough money in their family to pay for their diets. And if you have a limited budget, chances are your family's not going to be spending money on organic food. They're going to be the cheapest possible processed food to keep everyone alive. And I think this is something that does need to be changed. We need to subsidize food for children so that in this very important part of their life, they're not exposed to things that cause endocrine damage and change their bodies in well, ways. Well, and this just goes into a whole conversation of, of health as a privilege. Like, like we talked, we've, you know, the last two years with Black Lives Matter movement and conversations about white privilege and, and how insidious it gets. I mean, I've had other guests where we've talked about food deserts in general, but then you even get into this and the implications of it. So you, cause I mean, from naturopathic medicine standpoint, we talk about how each organ system completes its development at a different age. I mean, you're born with a full set, but it's not like you're done. I mean, you watch your child develop in terms of motor skills and thinking skills, well, their organ systems are developing as well. So yep. there's actually, you know, from age zero to seven, your immune system still has a lot of um, flux with the environment. Your boundaries are not completely all closed off. A lot more things can penetrate and get into nooks and crannies and cause impact in your immune system until your child's at least eight years old. So, you know, and it goes on beyond that. But then if you, if you have these things interrupting the endocrine system, the implications of that are like polycystic ovarian syndrome and early menstruation, which that's now like common to have in certain communities, girls having their menstruation at 10 years old. And the, the issue is what that means for the developing endocrine system and their propensity to type two diabetes, their propensity to all these other things that then become inhibitory to full quality of life, ease of employment. And then they get in the vicious cycle of, they have a medical condition. They can't afford medical care. They've got to spend their extra money on medical care. And it, I mean, the loop goes it's, on. It's a vicious cycle. And, you know, I, I agree that adults should have the right to say, you know, I don't care. I've decided I'm going to eat processed food. I don't want to work on learning how to cook. I'm going to eat junk food. I'm going to order pizza every night. Sure, that's your right as a human to decide you want to go down that path, but children don't have any choice. And I think we have a responsibility as a society to make sure that children have a safe environment to e evolve their bodies in. They need to have that time for developmental biology to take place where they're not being pummeled by endocrine disruptors like pesticides. And just to put an underscore here, we're starting to see more and more how some kids do have a genetic propensity to be more sensitive to these chemicals. And it's often kiddos on any sort of autism spectrum and or learning disabilities, ADD, ADHD. And when they do get put on organic food, their behavior changes dramatically because yes. of the interactions in their body. And so 
is it causing the autism? Not necessarily. That's a whole nother podcast, but it certainly makes a huge difference in the ease of behavior and how this child gets to experience themselves in the world and the decisions they make about themselves and what's possible. There's a whole interconnection there of mental health that this plays into. Well, in autism, a lot of the problem seems to be involved with dendritic pruning, which is actually an element of the immune system. Your immune system is what takes uh, part in the process of pruning unused dendrites which are and, the little ends of our nervous system cells and how they connect into our brain. The brain, right. And if, if your diet is disrupting your immune system, well, that's part of it. Yep. Would be contributory. Just theories, you know, we, we don't Yeah, have right. I know. Yeah. But, but we've seen it. I mean, in my profession, you know, 20, 30, 35 years ago, I had professors who this had been their whole career and they were sharing about it with me in medical school, how, you know, they were considered so fringe that they were adamant about any of their pediatric patients who were dealing with spectrum disorders to be on a completely organic diet and to mm -hmm. not have like red dye number seven and, and many of the kind of chemical additives into their diets and parents would be skeptical, but they'd start to see improvement over time. And then there was one story one of my professors told where, you know, her patient's son ate a conventional apple, just mm -hmm. one conventional apple. And within 30 minutes had a full-blown aggressive outburst like he hadn't had in two years since they'd started working with the naturopath. And it was just, it made a believer out of the whole family. And then they started to go, well, yeah, our son has these propensities, but what is it doing to the rest of us? Right. And, and then started to have the bigger conversation. And these people were considered like so extreme 30, 35, 40 years ago. And it's like, it really is standard of care now, but we don't have it in our system. My, my fiance used to talk about certain foods tasting like crazy. She was a super yep. taste. She could taste pesticides down to a few parts per million and some foods tasted like crazy. And she, that's one of the reasons she avoided them. And yeah. I didn't believe her at first. And we, but we, we tested her ability to taste these things. And she was right. Yeah. She could tell when food was contaminated with pesticides. I, I know there's a lot of autistic kids out there who refuse to eat vegetables and fruit. And sometimes I wonder if mm -hmm. they're right, if they yeah. know what's going on and they know it's, they're and, and so here they are being naughty and refusing to eat fruits and vegetables, but all of this time they're right. And if they'd been fed organic food from the beginning, this wouldn't be such an issue. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Tristan, this has been incredible. And I so appreciate your dedication to this subject and the work that you're doing now. Say what the organization is again, that you're working on the petition. Uh, Beyond Pesticides. Okay. It, working on a petition with. I did want to say one further thing, and that is if you want to regenerate the glutathione in your body to regenerate your resistances to things like COVID-19, N-acetylcysteine is a supplement that can be obtained still. It's been reclassified as a medicine, but it's just an amino acid and it's mm -hmm. as simple as eating a hard-boiled egg. So N-acetylcysteine is turned directly into glutathione by your liver. If you've got a nice healthy liver, if you're not damaging with alcohol every day, <laughs> you, you can actually re replete your body with glutathione with N-acetylcysteine. And I've seen it work wonders for people who had difficulties with immune issues and with uh, dietary issues and with repeated respiratory diseases in particular. Yeah. So I just want to pass that out there so people can look into it. 
it's particularly protective for the lungs and the lung tissue. And that was, I had always had it a part of my repertoire, but it was actually in all the research that came out of my community around what do we want to do for our patients to strengthen their systems, to prevent acquiring COVID that I started using it on a kind of more massive scale. And it's been awesome to see the impacts it's been having for people's health in general. In addition to, I I would not say what I do if I didn't see it every day amazing progress as people restore their health and restore their immune systems and stop coughing their life away. In Russia, where the scientists are investigating this in particular, all the scientists take an acetylcysteine and and we're all terribly frustrated that the doctors aren't listening to us and recommending this to their patients and the nutritionists don't even know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's growing. Good. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have any of the links in the show notes for people to learn more, to connect to the petition that we have referenced today in the podcast so that people can look further into it. My pleasure. It was wonderful to be here to see you again, Sarah. Absolutely. Until we get to do it again. All right. Thank you to today's guest, Tristan Brandhorst, for his tenacity and stand. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickport, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.